Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hey there world, you're listening to episode 8 of the insatiable Cool Thing Presents. I'm here with my compadre Michael Webster. Say something Mike. Am I insatiable as well? I don't know your sex life. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's no good, mate. No, no. <laughs> You've no dug yourself good. a hole in the first five seconds of the show. Well done. No one, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No one wants to know about that. And um, for, for those of you that don't know who's speaking right now, it is the uh, satiable Luke Branch. Okay, yeah, welcome to episode eight of uh, Cool Thing Presents. And we've got a fantastic guest today. Today's guest is a top British writer, a BAFTA-winning director, and co-founder of production company Shiny Button. Some of his most notable work includes directing the BAFTA-winning Murder in Successville, and more recently directing and co-writing the BBC One sitcom King Gary, which also co-stars co-writer and lifelong friend Tom Davis. Today, Cool Thing presents... James DeFrond. Hello, James. Hello, mate. That was nice. Thank you. Did I get anything wrong? <laughs> I'm just getting used to this over Zoom now. I've never been introduced, so I just enjoyed it. I thought you did very well, Mike. I thought it was very professional. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, just de- I just demand this kind of adulation for the things I do. So thank you very much. An insatiable adulator. Okay, James, thanks for, co- thanks for coming on the show. Um, Pleasure. I've been watching Murdering Successful over the last few days i hadn't seen it before i'm absolutely in love with it it's my new favorite thing so i'm really glad we're getting to talk while i'm so uh, beaming about your work um i'm just going to jump straight in if that's all right yeah, yeah yeah so i've met a lot of people in the film and tv industry and i think it's fair to say that you're definitely one of the more down-to-earth people that i've met uh, in that industry so can you tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up for you bloody hell uh yeah and um, yeah i think i slipped through the net somehow um <laughs> into into tv but uh but yeah I, I, I quite a working class upbringing um uh mum and dad divorced when i was quite young when i was about five so i was with my mum for a bit and then uh, she got my stepdad. They set up a building firm. Um, I did a right at school. Went to a grammar school. Uh, I had a weird thing where I went to a grammar school, but all my mates didn't. Um, so I've always felt like I've had a foot in sort of two different worlds. So you know, I ended up going into TV, but all my mates are scaffolders and roofers. Do you know what I mean? And um, and my mum and stepdad's business is a, is a building firm, so a property maintenance firm, hence King Gary. But um, uh, but then at school, I went to quite quite a traditional grammar school that played rugby and um, uh, was quite a competitive sort of more middle class world. So, yeah, always felt like I'd sort of 
feet in two different worlds, which is a good thing, I think. Um, uh, and then, yeah, always wanted to work in in TV and to write and comedy, especially, and was a big film fan and um, and, and managed to get a managed to get a job as a runner when I was 18. I sort of looked into doing a degree in media studies or, or going to film school and quickly learned that you could do three or four years or whatever to get your degree, but you still had to start as a runner. And I just thought, I was sort of itching to work, sort of. I didn't really enjoy studying, really. I just wanted to get out there. So um, I thought, if I can get three years hands-on experience within the industry, obviously that's just as valuable if I could get in there. Um, so I decided to not go to university. I was the only one out of 120 in my sixth form that didn't go to university. Um, wow. And I remember I remember lying to my headmaster and saying that I had a job at a production company as a runner and I didn't. Because <laughs> 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 they were giving me a hard time because I was the only one, you know. Um, and then in a roundabout way, yeah, I sort of threw my mum's second cousin's boyfriend at the time who was office <laughs> manager this is true um for a production company who were talkback productions which was like the best um comedy production company at the time owned owned by uh griffries jones and l smith um and they were making partridge um etc um and they needed an office runner for two weeks to help move some furniture um and that and that was my in really um and uh, I stayed longer than two weeks, and sort of here I am, really. But that was my in, and and yeah, it's it's interesting because I remember as a runner at eighteen, I was three or four years younger than everyone else who was a runner. But they'd they'd all been to, they'd all done their media degree in film school, and they sort of entered the production company thinking they were directors and thinking they were writers, and hated being treated like a gopher, and hated being making tea and coffees and running parcels um and had a bit of a bit of a chip on their shoulder whereas i was just so happy to be there <laughs> that i was just had a big smile on my face and couldn't do couldn't do enough and i think people like that uh, and, and and therefore out of that sort of pool of people i sort of got somewhere a bit quicker because i was just sort of keen and eager and happy to do it whereas they all thought they were just going to start you know directing straight away but it doesn't work like that you still got to start from the bottom and, and work your way up you know so did they I can imagine they must have found your attitude quite refreshing because I do I think like as you know my my wife works in film and tv and there there does seem to be quite a strict hierarchy um mm. within that world and you know so it must have been refreshing when you 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 first walked in like and just being happy to be there and grateful for the opportunity um and were maybe some of your peers a little bit kind of was there a bit of animosity there towards you or were they a bit like who's this like just coming in like just thinking he can get on with it well I just think that they you know they um they thought they knew everything from studying and and uh, and wanted to do it all straight away and it doesn't it doesn't work like that and and I, I sort of I sort of knew that and I just wanted to learn on the job so I, I wanted to listen and learn from the people that I was working with as well, which, you know, uh, and that's how, I mean, I, I self-taught, writing, self-taught director, I've not, you know, I've, I've just learned from other people. I've, I've learned on the job, you know, I've read a few books, but you you can't, you know, the best bit of learning that I've done from writing, for example, you know, it was from a particular writer at a particular time. And I learned more working with him in a day than reading any book or anything, you know, um, 
So I was sort of open to doing anything, listening, whereas I think a lot of others at the time thought they knew it all, and therefore they suddenly they, they hit a bit of a dead end. I'm sure they would have then learned it, but they're, I guess coming in, I was just more open to it all, um, which I didn't really know at the time. I was 18. I mean, you know, so I was, I turned up on my first day as a runner and, <laughs> and I was wearing a, um, a Burton's suit. And I walked into the, I walked into the runner's <laughs> and, uh And they were all in, you know, Converse and Rolling Stones t-shirts. And I was like, yeah, look, look, look like a right plum. And, and on the, and that afternoon, my first job was to make teas for a meeting for Griff Rees-Jones and uh and mel smith in my burton suit um and it, it, their old office was in percy street and they were sort of old rickety offices uh and there was this big glass uh, meeting room with these stairs that came down into it and i came down and i fell down the stairs and spilt the tea absolutely yeah that was my that was my first day and went home with a tea stained uh burton suit um but yeah i made everyone laugh though so did it did the uh, did the burton suit ever have a second outing or was that it I think that was the end of the Burton suit. That was Did you it, not get yeah. married in yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> no, my wife's far too cool. She wouldn't have had that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was my way in, really. And, you know, um, I was too young to, to get on a production. So you have to be 21 to get insured to drive on cars. So I ended up going off and being a camera assistant just so I could get onto, onto a film set. And I, I was a camera assistant for a cameraman for years, and then I was a cameraman. And then I started to film stuff, and then I was like, oh, fuck, I don't, I don't want to be a cameraman, I want to write. So then I had to take a side step back into production, but I'd learned a skill, do you know what I mean? Um, so, um, so yeah, so that was sort of my, sort of my way, way into it, really. And then I was at Talkback for seven years. Wow, yeah. Sort of worked, worked my way up through, through productions. Um, and then my big break came on Bo Selector, with Lee Francis, um, um, started to write sketches, um, and they started to use them. Um, and I was a researcher then, and then became a sort of producer on that show, and did a few of his spin-off shows um, with Keith Lemon. And yeah, so I sort of did my I did my learning, sort of the seven years at Talkback from sort of eighteen to twenty-five, where a lot of people would do that, I guess, at university and stuff. I sort of did it. I did it on the job. So, so as you were kind of like observing uh, different kind of parts of the creative process in, ma in making shows, yeah. how, how, how long in that journey from 18 to 25, how, how long into that did it take for you to start to get that real itch to, to create something of your own in terms of a script? Um, I guess the confidence to do... I think I think it probably took me the seven years to get comfortable in my surroundings, get comfortable with myself in those surroundings. I sort of spoke quite posh for a couple of years because <laughs> I was surrounded <laughs> by well-spoken people. And I, I think it was only around the age of the mid-20s that I just was like, well, not that I wasn't myself, but you know what I mean? I, I was trying to fit in to a world that was still quite foreign to me from where yeah. I'd come from. Um, and and I think once you sort of start to get a bit of respect from people and you can start to take comfort in yourself a bit more uh, and then become confident and then start to think of your own ideas. And, yeah, when I was around 25 and I was working on both select I, I started to write on the side a cartoon series um, called Blazing Lionel, which was like um, it's like a British 
excuse me, it's like a British Beaverton butthead about two stoner kids <laughs> on a council estate. Um, and uh, I started to write that on the side, and then I ended up getting it commissioned through MTV, and we ended up making like 20 shorts. That was like my first thing that I'd created and written and sort of directed, and that was on the side of what I was doing day-to-day and working on productions. That was the first time I sort of had the confidence to do my own thing. Um, but it takes a while, as I say, it took a while to be, yeah, to be sort of... Um, to have the balls to start to show people your other ideas and mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and and sort of go for your own your own thing really. But the thing I learned back then, which I still do today, is is always have lots going on, always have lots of ideas, and and try and keep plates spinning. You know, always have something that could be something scribbled down on the back of you know a piece of paper or whatever. But always have have a few things going, a few different things going. Um, because you never know in this industry what's going to go or if it's going to go and then and then and then cancel or whether it's you know you never you never know what's going to be the hit so I always try to have lots of ideas going um, that's a really interesting yeah. kind of point if you don't mind me just drilling down into that a little bit because obviously with with songwriting and in music in general like obviously the, I think the, the, the pretty much the worst thing that can happen is like overthinking over baking and getting obsessed with stuff so I, I certainly, and I know Mike agrees, you know, having multiple things on the go all the time helps you. You literally can't obsess about any of it. You do little bits of daily tinkering with things and you never quite know what's going to connect and what's not going to. But so that I, I guess um, that's an interesting parallel to draw. But I, I just wanted to ask one more question before Mike jumps back in, which was, you know, because you kind of moved into using the camera mm. you know, during that kind of period of your life. When you started writing, did you kind of have almost in your mind's eye how it would look and be shot as you were writing things? Was there any synergy between those two areas or were they separate completely? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that um, the, the stuff I learned looking through a lens as a director, um, uh, you, you look at things in a different way and, 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 and I've taken that on to director and I'm so glad I learned that part. Um, and, um, and definitely the scripts that I write now are very visual in the scene directions, you know, um, because I can see how it's going to be, you know, and and I think some writers that are just writers will just, you know, they won't be, there won't be hardly any scene directions. I probably write too many (laughs) because I'm getting carried away with in my mind how it will be shot, but also painting a picture of of what a scene is um but definitely a very visual in the writing because of my grounding really and and that, that's how i it's how i see things um um but direct like directing wise I, I you know that's all it's all self it's all self-taught really um from that because you just like okay all right so i need to do a storyboard i need to you know and I, and I still do all of those things i think i overdo those things for myself because I've never been taught it. So therefore, I know the things that I need to do and I'll do. You know, you hear about directors and they just, you know, they don't do any shot list, they don't do any storyboards. They just say, I just walk on to set and I'll fill the scene and all that. I can't do that. I need to, I need to overthink it so then I can relax on set. Oh, um, yeah. and, that, and, that, and that comes down to, that comes down to not, not being through, going through film school or going through those things where you've been taught it. So because I've taught it to myself in a way and learned from others, I overdo that bit because I feel like I, I have to. Um, 
but I guess maybe I'll grow out of that, you know, as I, as I go on. But I guess it's um, like work, working through all of the, 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 the points that might kind of uh, come back up at, at when, when you're on set trying to make it. Actually, weirdly, as a, as a bizarre tangent last night, I couldn't sleep and I was watching this thing uh, about Alien 3, about the original script for it. Uh, and it was going to be a wooden planet. It was going to be really su super cool. Uh, and they did the whole script uh, as a visual script. Uh, which had like every single thing was mapped out visually wow. and uh, it looks amazing I wish they'd made it because <laughs> it looked like it would have been yeah. awesome but, uh, but they never did so um, anyway I probably better discontinue my discussion of aliens which is probably irrelevant <laughs> <laughs> James so you spent seven years at, at Talkback but you now uh, run your own production company called Shiny Button um, where did the name come from and what are the benefits of running your own production company? Um, yeah, well, I am. Um, well, quickly, Shiny Button is uh, when we did the pilot for Murder and Successful, um, Tom's character Sleep had a running thing where um, <laughs> he, he had a shiny button um, that he'd give to the rookie for good luck. Um, <laughs> and, it, and he kept trying to get it in. So like in every scene, He'd go, remember this shiny button. Uh, and it never made the final cut, but it made us giggle and laugh. And it was this funny, funny thing. So when we <laughs> set up the company, we were like, let's call it shiny button. It's a little private joke for us. But a shiny button is like, you know, a diamond in the rough, um, mm. you know, uh, uh, that sort of symbology. But yeah, that, 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 that's why we called the company that. But yeah, having a company, I mean, I, I the in-between bit. So when I left Talkback, I... I worked for a production company for John Knoll, who was a big agent who looked after Lee Francis and Russell Brand and a lot of big comedians. Um, and then I was, I was, I worked for him for seven years. So I sort of, uh, I started as a producer there and then I, I sort of ended up sort of part running that company for someone else. Um, and I was sort of producing, directing and developing stuff. I did stuff with Lee. I did stuff with, you know, bits with Russell and bits with just the bigger talent. And then, and then I started to bring, new talent through so Morgana Robinson I did the Morgana mm -hmm. show and then brought in Tom Davis and he was in the Morgana show as well and then we started to do a few things and and so I had a really rich time there where I was just allowed to fuck about really with <laughs> writers and comedians and just come up with loads of different shows and we did you know a few sketch shows for Channel 4 and it was a really rich time of just finding a voice and 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 uh, and trying stuff out and and I'm I'm very grateful to John actually John Noel who had the company of just of just letting me do that um you know we had a good office we had a studio we could just go to the studio and switch a camera on and fuck about and make up a character and whatever else and film it and watch it back and we did a couple of couple of sketch shows like that for channel 4 that did well and um yeah and then off the, off the back of that then I went freelance as a director um for a number of years and then and then that's when Murder and Successful started. And we did two series of Murder and Successful, which were successful. And then off the back of that, we set up Shiny Button, me and Tom, with Andy, who's the exec of Murder. Um, and the first series that we made for Shiny Button was the third series of Murder, was our first one. Um, um, and it's great, man. I mean, it, it, it's hard. You realise how hard it is to get commissions and how grateful you should be when you got them. Because <laughs> it's... There's so many hoops to jump through. There's so many hoops to jump through, and it, it, it's, uh, and, you know, I like being across other projects, but it's, you know, a lot of commissioners want stuff from me and Tom, which is great, but we sort of we're, we're busy, 
and it's trying to get through the other stuff that's not us. But we can try and put our names to it. But you know, you're not going to be completely across it. But you know, um, it's uh, yeah, it's tough out there, man. It's tough. There's not a lot of windows for new shows. You know, um, it's that age-old thing of comedy. It's like there's lots of you know, if you're an established comedy face then, you know, you get a show really quickly. So it's just trying to get the new ideas through. Um, but BBC, BBC Three is great for that, you know, and BBC Three was great for Murder and Successful and, you know, all the other sort of big hits that have come through there. Um, you James, know, Channel Four used to be like that, but it's not anymore. So, sorry to cut in there, James. Um, in some ways, though, is has it become easier? Because I can imagine if, if you as a director or even as a writer, you're commissioned by another production company, maybe at some points you might be at loggerheads to try and get more budgets to try and get them to agree to more things but you now being the owner of the production company does that become easier or is it more of a burden the fact that the decision lies with you uh yeah i mean it becomes easier to um it becomes easy, easier to pitch ideas because you because you know um all of my mates are now commissioners at channels. So, you know, as, as a, it's just a generational thing. When you're, when you're starting out in telly and you're like, oh, fucking hell, I wanted, I wish I could, you know, have a beer with that commissioner and tell him my idea and you never can. Um, uh, and you think it's untouchable, but what happens is you're just a generation coming through. And then what happens is the producers that you've worked with on stuff for years end up being commissioners in, in channels, you know? So then you, you can just pick up a phone to pitch an idea rather than, you know, sending an email with something attached that they might not read. Do you know what I mean? Which is which is what you have when you're you're a bit lower down your career. So it's it, we're in a good place to have ins with channels. Um, um, yeah, the biggest thing is is just yeah the decision on what, what we take on and what we pitch, um, uh, and who we develop as a as a production company. Really, um, um, the, the cool thing about us is is we're a production company run by creatives run by writers and creators of content, whereas most production companies are run by producers and they're business people and they're not, they're not creatives. And, and, you know, for me, I want to, I, I've always wanted to attract more creatives because I feel like they should have more power and they don't in this country. They do in America. Writers are more in, in, in the UK producer is king still, but they're the guys that actually, that they're not the talent. You know, they're important, they manage things, they, you know, but they're not, they're not the creators or the writers or that, you know, like the musicians, they're, they're not the, they're not bringing the idea, you know, and in America, those guys are protected and those guys are the execs, those are, those, because they're, they're the money, right? But over here, you know, writers and talent, they just get the shittest deal. They still get a shit deal. And I, I just want to, I've always wanted to set up a production company where we can go to talent and writers and go, come here, we'll give you a good deal. We, we won't fuck you over because you are the most important thing and you need to be looked after because it's not fair, you know. Um, but um, yeah, sorry, I, I went I off. No, no, that's fantastic. So, it's so great to hear, especially like, you know, for, for us, we try to do the same thing with the label as well, obviously on a much smaller level, but it's, it's the, the inclination to try and treat artists fairly is, is, a, is, a, is a great one. Um, but just to go off like a very short point, um, when we were preparing for this, me and Mike were talking, um, and he told me that you make Spotify playlists or, or playlists on other platforms, perhaps, I don't know, mm. which kind of, uh, I just wondered whether that was a way to almost mentally inhabit a different space to help with writing um 
or whether it was just something that you do routinely um, to stay inspired? Yeah, it, it, sort of all of those things, really. It, every project, every new project, I'll, I'll start a playlist and I'll start to find a sound for that project, um, which will which I listen to when I'm writing, um, and it will influence the soundtrack for that show. Um, and uh, and the overall feeling for me, for, for me, it's all about knowing the tone of a show and the branding of it, and it needs to know what it is. Everything that's successful creatively for me is confident that it knows what it is, and it's got a voice and uh, one vision, and that everyone can tie into that from all of the other areas of the amazing creative people in the team that make the final thing, you know, that they've got one thing to tune into. And for me, it does start with the music. It starts with, um, so yeah, so yeah. So, uh, and I keep all the playlists and they're all, you know, and I've got playlists with shows that haven't even been made yet. You know, we're writing a Western, hopefully for Netflix, we've written two hours. It's like a black comedy Western that is amazing. But, you know, for that, I've gone quite, you know, 60s R&B soul and all of that and, and you know if it never goes anywhere it's just a really good playlist <laughs> that's cool it's got a bit, yeah. of a, got a bit of a swagger to it actually yeah. we, on, on that note we should probably swagger on through to your first uh, choice uh, of track um, did you want to introduce it yeah uh, first one uh, Revolution Toots and the Matals James, it would appear, correct me if I'm wrong, but the murdering successful is largely improvised. How do you go about directing that kind of a shoot? Uh, it's really hard. Um, <laughs> it's really hard. We, where do I even begin? So we, it's, it's sort of never been done before. So we, there's three cameras filming at the same time. Um, and... I am in the cameraman's ear um, and we heavily rehearse and block the staging of the action. Um, and, uh, and I've got three monitors and I basically, you know, we sort of, we, we know where it's going to go, but if it goes elsewhere, then I can try and preempt it and talk the camera guys through it. So it's a bit like a studio shoot, but we film it on location. So it feels real, like this sort of mad, live, immersive experience that we're putting people through. Um, but it's, yeah, it's mad. It's like I've, I've always, I'm like the evil puppet master. So I never, I, I control the experience that we put them through. So, and it's, you know, it is, it is improvised, but there's a script. There's a script we work really hard at. There's a script that's got three or four different outcomes. So if they react like this, we know we're going to do this, 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 and this. If they react like that, we that. Sometimes they don't do any of those, <laughs> and we rel we rely on the brilliance that is Tom Davis as our shepherd um, to to sort of bring it back onto the beats where we know how to get out of the room. <laughs> but but yeah, but there's a, you know it's it's heavily rehearsed. It's heavily we do a thing where we we did a thing where once we have the script and we know what what's going to happen in each scene, we'd get like a runner in or an intern, somebody that knows nothing about the script. And we'd, we'd put them through the 
the scene and we'd film it and see how they reacted to it. And then we'd watch it back and then we'd rewrite it or see what worked and what didn't. Um, so, yeah, so it's like a whole process to get that gold, um, you know, and, and but, but having it so if there is if if there isn't some improvisational ad lib gold we've still got funny lines we've still got it's still a funny scene there's a funny character there's a funny impression there's a you know sleep's going to be funny in it because of this um so yeah so it's a real it's a real process behind i think there was a lot of shows that happened after it just thought yeah Im improvisation's easy you just because you get a load of improvisers in and they just make it up and be funny and it's like no that you need to give them stuff you need to give them a skeleton to to spark off to get that to get that that you know that the improvised stuff you can't just make it up on the spot it's not fair on them and you don't get you don't get the stuff so yeah it's quite a carefully constructed show which then looks quite rough around the edges you know which it, which it which it sort of is but it isn't but this what we sort of you know we, we made a decision i think the first cut i did was so funny and I was like, we need to show that this is improvised. Um, so we left in the laughs and we left in bits that were rough around the edges just to make it feel, um, you know, that, that, that it was all happening in the moment rather than it was all, you know, scripted. Um, the, the thing, yeah. I mean, that that's actually, that's one of my favourite things about the show is that... Um, for example, when you when you see when you see Tom like crack a smile, or you see the you see the uh, the rookie, and, and that and they they start really laughing, or you know, for me it, it makes it makes you it draws you in even more, and and particularly with like um, with Tom's character Sleep, it it make it humanizes it so much, and I, just, I those are the bits that I really really laugh at because I'm just I can just see that it's it's going wrong in his mind, and he's having to kind of like then put his straight face back on and redirect it back into where he's, he's got to go and it, it, it massive credit to him in that because he, his performance is is amazing you know not to comb his balls too much but he, he is <laughs> he is a um he's a incredible comedy actor he's a, he's amazing and he and it and, and it for his breakout show it it literally um, is catered for for all his strengths because he's a, he's an amazing character comedian and I don't think he gets enough praise for the amount of different characters that he's done. You forget, you know, Gary is a version of Tom, but you know he's done so many different characters that that, that um, over the years. Um, but but his improvisational skills is is the best. He's the best, and he thrives off of it. He thrives off of the office scene at the top of it is when he's figuring out. And sometimes that's the longest scene. It's just two people sat either side of a desk, but it's Tom figuring out what the comedy relationship's going to be. So someone, someone like Deborah Meaden comes in and immediately is like, right, I've got this. She's going she's gonna to take this so seriously that if I'm a big bozo getting in the way of her cracking the case, she's going to get pissed off. And, you know, if I offend her, that's going to be funny. Like all of those things he's sussing out in the opening scene. And then suddenly the, the relationship emerges. The relationship that you'd, you know, spend months writing. What's the comedy relationship he figures out, you know, because we never know that. We know the, the experience we're going to put them on, but we don't know what the comedy di dynamic's going to be. And he susses that out. And then, and then that, that sets the style of, of, of how they're going to be together, you know, and, and that's very, very clever. And yeah, and the, the laughing, the leaving in the corpse in 
is what for me will make it the funniest show that I'll ever make because it's another layer on top of the comedy. It's another layer on top of the scripted lines of the character performances. It's the it's 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 the corpsing that's so infectious, you know. And and I had to fight for that. So first series, the BBC. I was like, we need to going back to the you know people believing it was improvised. I was like, we need to leave some laughs in, and they didn't want to do it. And I had to fight for it. I was like, trust me. I mean, they're funny, but it just sells that it's improvised. And then I think we had a rule on season one that that's, I think if you watch it, sleep doesn't go. Tom doesn't go in series one. Um, but series two, we started to leave in his corpses as well. Mm. And then by series three, I mean, yeah, the wheels had fallen off. He was talking to the cameramen and all sorts, you know. <laughs> the, the fourth wall had been completely fucking broken. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, man, that's why it's so joyous, I think. It's, it's uh, a combination of Tom, the brilliance of Tom being able to to carry it um and we're making an american version at the moment well the americans are making it um with an american sleep and you know i said to them you've got to find someone as good as tom because you know that 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 actor's got to carry that and be able to shepherd them and improvise and be funny and stay in character all of those things that are going on is not an easy job you know um but uh how well do you think it will translate like across in america um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. It's a hard show to make. You know, we're, we're execs on it. So we, we, we'll, we'll be there to, to help them, uh, and advise, uh, and consult. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's what rules they stick to. It's whether they stick to how we made it and, you know, um, you know, cause it's got the whole celebrity impression thing on, you know, what celebrities they choose to do and the slant on that. I don't know. It's really, I think it's really British and British humor is different to American humor. So mm. it'll be interesting to see what their, what their slant is on it. You know, yeah, um, yeah. definitely. It seems like all the kind of creative decisions that you piece together to make it as good as it is paid off. Obviously you got the, the BAFTA for directing it. And I, you know, me and Mike were talking, we wondered what um, doors, if any that opened up on, on the back end of winning that. Yeah, we we um we um so I can hear my children at home. Uh, we uh, we uh, it. I tell you what, it does. Um, it it just gives an element of trust, you know. So so um, you know, we, we we had a few things that were going before the BAFTA win, but I think just going forward, just as creatives and with vision, you are hopefully trusted more. Um, you get less meddling in a way because they're like you know hopefully these guys know what they're doing so we let them get on with it but i also think that sometimes we were talking earlier about i think sometimes people can meddle too much um in things and they get broken and i think sometimes the best things are yeah let them get on with it uh and giving constructive notes but not too many um so that it's got one voice you know um uh, and i think you know with murder they they I think it was such a mad idea that they probably thought was going to fail. They just let us get on with it. And so we never, they didn't really meddle in it. So we were allowed to make it how we wanted to make it. And sometimes you're not allowed to do that. Um, and I think the BAFTA win just, just sort of cements that you can be trusted to do that. And that, you know, you, I think that's all it does really. Um, I mean, it's a lovely thing, um, but 
yeah, so I don't know, I don't know if it opens doors. I, I feel like it's so competitive out there anyway. Um, it just might get a bit of, just gives you a bit of kudos, I think, going forward, um, which is important once you get things away and you can just hopefully execute it the way you want it to execute and are left alone a bit more. Um, um, not saying that people give, give you bad thoughts from you know the channels, but I think over the years, if you look at all the successful comedies, they've all been left to get on with it. Yeah, totally. I think. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, just level of purity in all creative work. You know, I I once worked on a record for a for a big for a big major label uh, for another artist, and I just watched it get absolutely whittled down and homogenized to just like a record that could have been by anyone. If you know what I mean. So, so I certainly have seen it happen in music as well. Purity and uh, authenticity is key, isn't it? Yeah, and just you, you know. You have to fight for that sometimes, and yeah. that comes with experience. You know, when you're first starting out, and someone's giving you meddling in your thing, and you sort of probably will um, will let them meddle a bit more. Um, but um, but yeah, that comes with experience, where you you know where to put your foot down and go. No, this is this is this is this is what it is. Um, but yeah, stuff can be um, stuff can be broken, definitely. I guess it's like in um, extras where he he writes his own show, doesn't he? And then they just turn it into this load of old shit that that he really didn't want to do. And that's where David Bowie comes in, and they just start taking the piss out of the fact that he's got a you know pug nose face and and that he's wrote a, sh- a shit uh, shit sitcom, you know. Um, but that's yeah. but like Ricky, Ricky, you know the famous story about Ricky and Stephen Merchant is they you know they made the pilot for The Office, they've done a little taster and. And uh, they were considering it for a series, and Ricky was like, "I want to direct it with Stephen. We want to, we want to follow through that vision." And they were like, "No." And he's like, "Well, you can't have it then." And then in the end, they buckled, and it's the fucking best thing that's ever been made because they were allowed to carry throughout that vision, you know, which directing something allows you to do. You know, if you've written something, if you direct it, you can follow that vision through. You know, it, there's, there's going to be no fucking around with it. You know, uh, and and that's that's the biggest example I think of just letting people get on with it. You know, um, but still giving constructive guidance, but not meddling too much. You know, and 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 people having opinions because they feel they have to, you know, to justify their you know their position. <laughs> have you seen uh, Have you seen series four of Seinfeld? To go off on another tangent. Yeah. Where they where they write the show inside the show. And yeah, yeah it's they, have to, they have to keep getting notes off of uh, NBC. <laughs> it's a show about nothing. What, is yeah. that, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it doesn't mean. No, it's nothing. It's just yeah. so, so funny. Yeah, anyway, anyway. <laughs> so we want to talk a little bit about King Gary now. So mm. you wrote King Gary with Tom, Tom Davis. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about your writing process with him and how does it compare to? Um, either you writing on your own or you writing with someone else. Um, yeah, I mean, me, 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 and, me and Tom have been mates since we were 15, so there's a shorthand there um, that you can't buy, really. So writing-wise and making each other laugh-wise, and that's sort of what you do when you're writing, you know. You know, I'm writing the Christmas special at the moment, and, and you know, we we write a load of beats, we know what the story is, and then we'd divvy up scenes. Sometimes we go, you take part one, I'll take part two, or, you know, you do that scene, you'll do that scene better than me and whatever else. But I'm trying to make him laugh. I'm trying to, when he reads my scenes, uh, you know, in my mind, I'm trying to make him giggle, you know, and, and because we've got that connection. Um, 
so that's that's just a special thing, really. And King Gary is very much about a world and characters that we know collectively, family and friends that we know, um, and 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 so it, it, it's a bit special, really, because it, and it's, it's it's not easy to write because it's a family sitcom and they're really fucking hard and everyone wants to fucking hate it. Um, so it, it, it's a hard one to crack. Um, but for us, the success will always be the characters and and them shining through. And I think if you can nail that, then and and and, and then being relatable, you know. Um, uh, so yeah, so we. I mean, we we, you know, we we have a rule. We always we, we literally today got our first draft down. So we've both we've divvied up scenes and we've just splurged, and it's. 47 pages long um the final one that we hand in will be around 30 um so there's like you know <laughs> there's like 17 pages of stuff that will that will go across it but we sort of got a rule where we get it down um and don't be scared to scared to get it down um and uh and then we work it out because once you get a script down from the beats of it you see what's working and what's not, and you can see it clearly. And for us, we can see what needs doing. And no one's ever going to see that draft apart from me and Tom, and no one ever will, you know. And there'll be bits that don't work, and there'll be bits that that do, or bits that 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 don't work, but but show us areas where it where it can be improved. And uh, you go, oh no, actually, you can start with that and do that, you know. But unless you get it all out, um, so that's always our, that's always been our number one rule. Um, and Tom works as a, as a, just a funny man. He works with a script in front of him because then he can spark off. It's a bit like improvising. He can spark off the words on the page. So, uh, you know, once he's got the words on the page and we do a script read through, he'll just be sparking on more funny stuff off the funny stuff that's on the page, you know, so his brain works better like that. Um, you know, he, he's amazing with dialogue. He's probably better than me. I might be a little bit better on story uh, and structure. Um, so we sort of complement each each other really, um, you know. And you want him, you know, not now because it's all done over Zoom. But you want him to have a day where he's up on his feet, just being a funny fucker, and I'm the one <laughs> typing it down. Do you know what I mean? And you you want you want to allow that. So just how how <laughs> creative partnerships work, you know. But it, it, it's you know he's great at taking on other characters because he's a character comedian. So you know when we're writing Gary's dad, he can be Gary's dad in the room you know because he he can get that voice and then then i know how to write that voice because i've heard it from from tom before we cast simon day you know um so so it's yeah gary gary's a special one with regards to writing but you know we've got like five different things that we're writing at the moment some that are, that are commissioned some that are on, on their way hopefully and they're all so varied with you know comedy thriller uh western um and uh, we just like to push ourselves and always be quite ambitious and take on different genres and hopefully always have our sort of comedy voice nice, in those nice. different genres, you know, to, to, to mash it up and go, you know, that trying to get a clear comedy tone that that's, that's our thing, do you know what I mean? Um, but, um, but yeah, so Gary, Gary's, Gary's a joy, really. I've been writing something else and it's really hard. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a comedy thriller and it's twists and it turns and it's really fucking complicated plot. Whereas Gary is just, you know, I said to Tom, we've had like five months of writing this other thing and we've just gone back on to Gary and it's like me, meeting an old mate in the pub and having a pint, you know, it's just, oh, yeah, this is nice. Um, so it would be nice, there. wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It would be nice anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's what we're all dreaming about. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Water I've got. 
Well, in the in the in the in the pursuit of uh, uh, of moving things forward, um, we should probably have another tune. Um, can you remember what your second choice is? Uh, Die straight, money for nothing. Yeah, boy. It's an absolutely fantastic tune. Before we play it, can um yeah. can I just ask you a bit about it? Like, what yeah. made you select this song? Because it is in it's at the end um, of Murder in Successful season two. Is that right? Aha, uh -huh, well spotted. Yeah, yeah I wish it was. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I used it. I used it in the pilot. So we made a pilot of Murder in Successful, and it was such a fucking mad idea. Murder mystery, improvised, celebrity guest. Like, it was just such a mad mashup of things. Film noir, you know, in this sort of mad sort of Sin City world. And is it going to work? Um, and uh, one of the things I wanted to do at the end was 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 the... The bromance, you know, the, the sort of cop story that happens across it and they're all different dependent on the relationship with the rookie. And at the end, have a really good feel-good song um, and, and, and something that felt, that captured those feel-good endings in 80s movies was where it came from. You know, like the end of, end of Beverly Hills Cop or um, Romance in the Stone or like it was always like feel-good and just made you feel nice and, it, and, and I, I wanted to try and capture that. And I used money for nothing in the pilot. So at the end, they, you know, they guess who they think it is and then they walk off into the sunset and I had that drop and it just worked. So then for the series, series one, I just used 80s tracks for the, for the end scene into the credits for that feel good moment. And um, that was a great playlist. That was, that was a playlist of just, you know, those, those 80s bangers that, that make you feel sort of all warm and cozy. I love it. It really reminds me of being a kid and trying to like push myself into the TV screen, just like in the video. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I wanted to do is literally go into the television screen. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's uh, you know, I, so when I was a kid, I was like, I was like um, five or six. My mum, mum, dad divorced, and I lived, I lived in a flat above an antique shop next to a video shop. And my mum worked in the travel agent, two shops up. And most of my sort of from the age of five to ten was was just spent watching videos uh, and it was that rich 80s time so I just watched my my childhood is, is just 80s movies um so those sort of songs that were in there um were sort of ingrained in me um and uh yeah money money for nothing was the first one so we used it in the pilot and then like used some great ones in series one and then I wanted to try and use get it in there somewhere and it, it worked well in the end of series two is it when he's in in, in hospital you directed it, yeah. right? You should tell yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, it's, it's the hospital one. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's hear it. Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. James, film and TV production is a collaborative process. Um, and when working with other departments, how do you work with them to achieve your vision? And how do you navigate your way around really difficult characters? Because there's lots of them in the, in the film industry. Uh, there are. None of them work with me, though. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Uh, my team's lovely. 
um, and you know they all work for each other, and that's that's the beauty um, of of what we do, right? It's the alchemy of of, of everyone coming together. Um, so uh, so yeah, that's a good thing about when you get to my my stages. You know, you get to choose the people you work with. When you're when you're coming up, you don't, and that's when you have to deal with the uh, the watches. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's everything for me. It's, it's, it's all departments coming to one vision, and as I said before, music's part of that, and you know, um, I've always worked with the same DOP, Roy, who's amazing. Um, I've never changed the cameraman that I've worked with on all the big shows I've done. Um, and it starts with him. It starts with the lens we're going to use. It starts with the color palette. It starts with the grade. We decide on the grade and the look before we even start filming so that we've got that color palette to look at. Um, so, you know, for Gary, we knew we wanted it to feel warm and sunny and slightly Americana in its feel. Mm. So we got lots of references for that. Um, and, and the music I wanted to be, you know, had that sort of, you know, uplifting thing as well. And, and then you, and then you tune everyone into that, you know, um, you know, um, from the art department, production design, you know, tuning into the color palette and, you know, um, that we want it to be colorful, you know, the characters are colorful. Costumes, colourful set design, colourful. Really going for strong, um, strong, strong images. So it, it, it's you know get costume, talking to production design. I, I think getting other departments to talk to each other rather than just just through you. Do you know what I mean? So that everyone's tuning into the you know, and depending on the show, you know, mood boards and things that people are. You know, something like Murder and Successful. I had I had an I think I was using an app at the time that I got everyone to have. Um, and I was just loading in for each episode. I'd load in the references for um, the lighting for each set and the design and just bundles of film references so that everyone was tuning into the same thing. Um, and that's when something looks good. It's like, you know, the cameras are amazing these days. The lenses are incredible. You know, we couldn't be working with better equipment, but, you know, to make something look good, you need to think about it. And, and that, that's down to the set that they're on, the lighting of the set that they're on um, and all of those things. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's everything to me. I, I, it's weird because I take such an interest in costume um, and such an interest in design. And, and you, you'd be surprised how surprised um, people are because a lot of directors don't. They just... They just and then they complain because they turn up and it's not how they wanted and it's like well you've not communicated <laughs> you've not communicated you're not spoken to anyone that you know this is how you want it um, and uh, a lot of directors don't they just don't do it you know and that's the difference between something looking different and and, and uh, original and having its own you know I, I'm I'm geeky down to the font so I'm I've decided I was I've, I decide the font you know when I'm deciding the grade and all of that I, it, it it's you know it's um yeah it I, I think about all of that and all of that before we start filming rather than finding it in the edit a lot of people find stuff in the edit and i feel like getting all of those elements in in place that everyone's tuning into up front is is much better particularly with king gary actually like the the title screens like the actual typeface that comes up with just king gary and I think in the the pilot in the first episode i think he's he's down at the david lloyd center and he's he's when he stands up i think he's got some beers or something and he says king gary either side of him just just that typeface and the way it comes up and the way it just briefly comes up on the screen and even with um you know as you you've said to me before the melt yourself down soundtrack that just comes on at that point really was iconic actually and you sort of kept that going mm. through each episode it was excellent 
Yeah, it, it's yeah. I mean, the pilot was great. The um, yeah, because he sits on the sun lounger and the waiter's got three pints behind his head and it looks like a crown. You know, yeah. three three pints of beer, which is very much that character. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 important. Yeah, and 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 the music as well. So. Um, yeah, so the same as everything, I did a playlist for Gary and I got quite upset. I was listening to a lot of Sons of Kemet and I was listening to, is it The Comet's Coming? And, and Melt Yourself Down, um, but just that sort of dubby modern jazz. Uh, and I was also quite obsessed with, there was a series called Vice Principles, which Danny McBride did in, um, in America, he did Eastbound and Down, and they used a lot of percussion for drama in that series and I thought that was interesting. So I was sort of bits of Magic Drum Orchestra, um, just how percussion can be used to build tension and stuff. Um, and then, so this playlist was building and then just listening to, yeah, Sons of Kemet, Melt Yourself Down and Horns. Um, and it just worked for Gary. I'll tell you what it is. It's, like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really, Cool, it's a really cool version of a comedy trombone. <laughs> 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 you like that, and 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 Gary is this big sort of do, doofus, this big goofball, you know, with a big beer belly, sort of prodding along, you know. Is um, that right? <laughs> exactly that. Exactly that. If you've tuned, <laughs> for those of you that have just tuned in, you haven't tuned into the Bizarre Trumpet channel, this is still Soho Radio. Yeah, they've clicked culture on the Soho Radio <laughs> oh thing, God. and they've got ask out of... <laughs> <laughs> and on that bum note, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there, as the hour is up. You've been listening to episode eight of Cool Thing Presents, recorded exclusively for Soho Radio. Tune in in two weeks' time to hear part two our interview with the award-winning director, James DeFrond. <laughs>